0: So as you get to Luke 22, I was reading this line from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in London in the 1900s, a long time ago. He said, a friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him, and he wanted to know how to be rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. Lloyd-Jones said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know that you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, he said, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else than humble when you see him. That is the only way Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, look at Him and you realize who He is and what He has done, and you are humbled. And that's what we want to do this morning. Look to Jesus, realize who He is, what He's done, and as a result, be humbled. And as you heard Rusty read the text, I I feel like I need to explain how how I'm moving or why I'm moving in this direction based on the text, not I felt like we should talk about humility this morning. I think these two ideas uh, 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 of the work of Christ, the person of Christ, and humility, they flow out of the larger context of this chapter. Jesus has just finished the Passover And he had kind of, we said he kind of taken the symbolism of the Passover and used it to point forward to his impending within hours execution and his substitutionary death on the cross. He's just finished describing this that that he is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that he's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And then he immediately transitions into how he should prepare his disciples in light of what is about to happen. And he begins to instruct them. And you'll see, I think, a theme that develops, especially in the text we're going to look at uh, this morning, verses 24 to 34, this, this need that the disciples have to humble themselves or to be humbled. So it seems like this section, uh, again, sort of includes everything that flows through verse 38. We won't make it quite that far this morning. We're going to make it through verse 34. But let's look and see how this theme of humility is developed. Look there in verse 24. We see humble service. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now remember, this is on the on the heels of Jesus saying, "One of you here at this meal will betray me." And of course, those who have walked through the Gospel of Luke, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you know as a reader, as somebody who's studying it, you're not surprised when you get to this point that Judas is the betrayer because you've actually been told early on in the Gospel that it was Judas that he would conspire against. Jesus. But imagine the shock of the disciples, right? We're, we sort of have this expanded view of what's going on, and we've heard the story, and we know, and we're told earlier in the text. But imagine the shock of the disciples when they learn that one of them at that private Passover meal between Jesus and his disciples would be the one to betray Christ. And it even led to a discussion. We looked at this actually a, a couple of weeks ago verses 21 to 23, but this actually led to a discussion about who is it? Luke doesn't tell us, but I think it's in Matthew. They begin to wonder, is it it me? And amazingly, the disciples move from that conversation, one of the 12, one of you here will betray me. Who is it? There's discussion amongst them. The very next thing we have in our text is an argument amongst the disciples about who's the greatest of the bunch. Right, Luke says, a dispute arose among them. And it's bad enough to find the disciples arguing right after Jesus' prediction. Again, he used the Lord's Supper. This is my body given for you. This is my blood of, of the new covenant. He, right after he tells them he's going to die, they debate for a minute about who's going to betray him. And now they're debating about who is the greatest. Now, unfortunately, this isn't super surprising for us as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke. This is actually not the first time they've had this debate. And it's not the first time they had it right after Jesus said he's going to die. You know, from what we know about the disciples, And from some of the other conversations that they have about who's the greatest, who's going to be on Jesus' right hand, their their, their argument about greatness seems to be related to this idea of, of the kingdom. Jesus has come, He's going to establish this kingdom, and they want to be second in charge, second in command. In other words, they hope to gain status by their closeness to Jesus, as it Relates to their position in this kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. In other words, they're just jockeying for position, not unlike politicians in our world today. But Jesus doesn't engage the debate. He doesn't just tell them, well, you know, obviously Peter's the greatest, or obviously John's the greatest. Quit, quit arguing amongst yourselves. He doesn't engage the debate as much as he sort of changes the rules for the competition. How are we going to judge greatness? What is greatness? He says that actually the greatest among you will be the one that serves. He sets out to change the way they think about greatness, change the way they think about leadership and power In authority. It's not who can climb the ladder the tallest and coerce others to do what they want through their power and their authority and their great leadership. The greatest among you, Jesus says, is the one who will serve. And he does this through, he makes this point through a couple of illustrations of of what not to do. Look there in verse 25. The, The secular rulers are an illustration of what not to be. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So he says, he, he kind of alludes to what the world considers the true measure of greatness, power and authority, the ability to lord that over people under your command. He, he implies that the rulers of this world use fear and authoritarian tactics to, to bend subjects to their will. I think that's the idea behind that, that phrase. They exercise lordship. right? That, that phrase is used elsewhere in other contexts. Context. It's just translated dominion, like they dominate. That's how they measure greatness. How many people am I dominating? How many people are under my uh, power and control? And not only that, but they, they, they demand these flattering titles, this title of benefactor there at the end of verse 25. That's a title of, of honor that, that goes to someone who does great civic duty. Right, you you're you're a benefit to that society. You know, and some of us, we we see those two things, right? Man, domination over people and honor among people. Like they call me a, a benefactor, man. If if we're honest in our hearts, sometimes we think, what a life that would be. Power and praise, respect and honor. And so as we sort of can tend to daydream and, and, and sort of drift off into this world and maybe think that that's what we should be desiring, that's what we should be going after, Jesus sort of shakes us awake from our days, D-A-Z-E, and, uh, and reminds us and teaches us what is actual greatness and even what is actual leadership. Look there in verse 26. He contrasts it. Right? That's how we know Jesus is saying, this is what not to be. Verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So Jesus says true greatness is not about you know, getting people to do what you want them to do. I remember back in the 90s, you know, there was these leadership books all over the place, they, and they define leadership this way. Leadership is influence right if you can influence people to do what you want to do then you're a leader that's a terrible terrible standard for leadership hitler was very influential right it, it, they, they totally missed what leadership is and jesus here goes to what it is it's being willing to serve and so as jesus prepares his disciples for his de- departure he wants them to see that 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 as his apostles, as his representatives, as those who will be sent out on a special mission, they will not lead, the, they, they should not lead the way of the world. They should not lead through coercion, but through serving. And the greatest among them will be the one who serves. They must be comfortable being treated like the youngest. Did you catch that in verse 26? Let the greatest among you become as the youngest right you may have picked up and as you read your bible even but in this culture the youngest was treated like sort of a menial servant the firstborn got a lot of honor and and an inheritance and and the youngest would be out in the field shepherding the sheep like king david right and all the young siblings in this room say amen right this was a this was a low station a, a low position the disciples had to sort of reject this worldly thinking because they would be the ones that Jesus would be be sent out to preach the gospel, to establish churches, to train elders, appoint elders, find deacons, teach the, 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 the word, and to record the word. They could not be those who led the way the world leads. They needed to see themselves first and foremost as servants because the church would be built, Ephesians 2.20, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You think about the apostles. They had a high station. They could have led in, in a worldly way if they chose to. They could have taken advantage of others for their own advantage, of their own gain. And as those of us who... You know, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are, we are not apostles, we're not disciples, but we are, we are walking in the foundation that they laid. We, we too gather in local churches, we too preach Christ. I think we too should ask ourselves, am I comfortable being treated like a younger brother? Or am I, tr- am I comfortable serving like a younger brother? Am I willing to serve behind the scenes, Unnoticed? Or do I want the position of prestige and authority? Jesus says the one who is truly great is the one who acts for the good of others, not for the good of self at the expense of others. You know, it's interesting since I think since Jesus contrasts, he uses secular leaders to kind of make his point here of what he desires from his disciples. I think it's interesting for us to just kind of wonder aloud, man, what would it look like if a nation did have leaders that led the way the Gentiles, the Gentile kings here don't? What if every leader existed not for their own gain, but for the service and good of others? And it's sort of a I admit it's sort of a setup because as we sneer at the politician and we say yeah how terrible are they I wonder what it would be if our families operated this way and you know what about if every church every church was driven not by this desire to be great in the world's eyes but by service and love for others you see, I think Jesus rebukes, it's a gentle rebuke, but I think He rebukes His disciples because He sees they're being driven by selfish ambition. They want to elevate themselves. I'm greater than you, and if I'm going to elevate myself, I have to kind of squash the guy next to me. So He sees the selfish ambition in them, and He corrects them. Because selfish ambition will destroy any sense of unity amongst the disciples. And it will destroy any ability for them to establish churches that are united around Christ. Because selfish ambition, James 4, uh, where are these wars and these fightings arising from you? Do they not come from these passions? You want something and you don't get it, so you murder. Right? Selfish ambition leads inevitably to conflict. And they can't establish churches of unity if they're driven by selfish ambition, which leads to hatred of others, leads to bitterness, leads to animosity. And so what Jesus is seeking to instruct his disciples is is that selfish ambition must be replaced with humility. Selfish ambition must be replaced with humility. It's humility that allows a person to, to... selflessly serve others. And what happens in a church, and we see it in our church, when you you selflessly serve others, it's not hatred and bitterness and animosity that's multiplied. Selfless love for others is multiplied when we put aside selfish ambition. So Jesus says, worldly leaders exercise lordship over others, but not so with you. Not so with you. The the greatest is the one who becomes like the youngest, and the leader will be the one who serves. So that's the first illustration Jesus gives, secular rulers. The second one is there in verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you. As one who serves. Jesus says that you know it you can typically walk into a room and you can see and read who is the most important person in the room. And he's usually not the person that's walking around filling up everyone's unsweet tea. Right? If I was still in Missouri, I would say sweet tea. But that's how you recognize greatness. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. That's how you recognize greatness, right? Who's the one that's being served? Who's the one that gets to recline back and someone comes and meets all their needs? That's how you can tell the most important person in the room. But Jesus says at the end of verse 27, But I am among you as one who serves. So what's going on is Jesus has set up the way the, the world thinks as if it were really true. Isn't that true? The greatest one in the room gets gets served. The world thinks that others serving you is greatness, but in reality, he's, he's argued the one who serves is the greatest. And he gives the disciples, I think, this this airtight example to drive home his point that there's no way that they could push, push against. And he does it by pointing to himself. In essence, he's saying, I will demonstrate to you that true greatness is service because I'm the one that served you. And they would be gravely mistaken if they were to assume that they were greater than Jesus because he washed their feet that night. The greatest among them is the one who serves, and it is Christ. It is Christ. You see how Jesus stands in stark contrast to those who want to leverage their position to serve themselves. Instead, Jesus came to serve. One of the ways he's serving in this text is by taking time to instruct his disciples as he's, even as he's preparing for his own death. They're not going to lay down their lives. At least not the next day. Jesus is the one who's about to die, and He's serving His disciples by instructing them. And so we see that Christ not only redefines greatness and what it means to lead, but He's the the ultimate example of it. He perfectly exemplifies His message of loving, self-sacrifice. By coming, He says, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. As the only payment for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God. So our commitment this morning is not to gaining more influence and power, but to use the authority, influence, leadership, power that God allows you to serve others, right? So the world would say, the world kind of sees that, okay, Gentile kings, man, they use power to abuse people. And then they, they, they make this leap. Well, then power is bad and we should divest everyone of all their power. That's not, they're just, they're short-circuiting here what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no, use whatever leadership, whatever power, whatever authority God has given you, whether it's in, in the church or in, in the home, use it to serve others for the glory of God. Use it to give away of yourself, not to benefit yourself. You know, Jesus actually in our text, He goes on to model again this sort of leadership, not only through His death and resurrection that are coming, but by His sharing of His authority in the kingdom with, with the disciples. In other words, what Jesus, Jesus says to do, He demonstrates right here beginning in verse 28, That that he's not going to hoard all this authority that God has given him, but he's going to share it with his faithful followers. Look there in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's, he's... rebuked his disciples where necessary, right? I, I love the way one commentator spoke about, about verse 28. He says, then he commended the disciples where he could. <laughs> you know, he, he, he commends them in something that is actually commendable. They've stayed with him in his trials. And certainly as as the disciples are hearing this, they would have ha- had in mind, you know, certain trials that they've experienced alongside of Jesus. They could recall various hardships and difficulties they faced because they had allied themselves with Jesus. Right? We've seen in the Gospel of Luke several times where Jesus faces rejection, hostility, slander. Yet the eleven, right? Minus not Judas out of the picture. The eleven have remained steadfast. I think about when Jesus was being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan they stood with him despite their weakness and frailty or when he was being attacked for being a friend of sinners Jesus says you are those who stayed with me during my trials and the result of the result of their faithfulness imperfect as it as it has been, as it will prove to be, but the result of their general faithfulness is great responsibility in the kingdom of God. The ones who are called here to selfless service are assigned a kingdom. I would say here, much like these other kingdom passages we've walked through in the gospel, look, there seems to be both present realities and a future promise involved in this idea of the kingdom we've talked about that quite a bit we're not going to rehash it every time we've been operating under the understanding that the kingdom is inaugurated at the first coming of christ but we yet await the full and final consummation of the kingdom at the return of christ and i think we see that a similar idea here in our text that the disciples play an important role in both of those, the present reality and the future reality. And I say that, that, that Jesus says, I, I assign you. At this present tense. It's, it's something that's currently happening. They will have an important role in God's mission going forward. As again, we've said before, they're going to go out, they're going to preach Christ, they're going to pro- proclaim the kingdom of God, even in the book of Acts. And Acts records for us that Jesus says, hey, great power is going to come upon you when the Holy Spirit falls on you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So he empowers the disciples for their work in proclaiming the kingdom of God. And you see that in the book of Acts. But it seems as if, too, there's these future realities there in verse 30. Verse 30 seems to be looking past the trials and tribulations that will be associated with the work of spreading the gospel to the nations. And the result of their faithfulness, he says, will a, a place at the table in Jesus' kingdom and sitting as judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. One commentator explains it this way. He says, These remarks look to the final wedding of events in God's plan when promises to Israel are, are fully realized and when Jesus rules both heaven and earth. And he means this by that. In that day, Jesus' authority will be clearly visible in both spheres. So we're not suggesting that Jesus isn't ruling now. But, Isaiah 32, But behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Promises made to Israel long ago will be carried out such that God's grace and words are to, are shown to be fully true. He's promising this, this involvement in the kingdom to the disciples so how might then we've been saying like we're not apostles it's bad hermeneutics to just take a promise that's given the disciples and say oh yeah that's about us right that's not how we want to interpret the bible but we might ask then how does this how do we apply this text to us let me make one quick suggestion Again, we're not the main referent of this te- referent of this text. We do engage in, in the, I would say, the great commission that's given to the disciples, the mission of the church. We do desire to live consistent with the ethics of the kingdom of God that Jesus taught. And we do look forward to this messianic reign of Christ. But again, we're not the main focus here. So I want us to make an observation that will help us do what we set out to do from the beginning of this text. And that's a... We can't identify in every way with these disciples. But we can identify with them in this sense. We tend to be those who jockey for position. right? We tend to be those who think that we can outdo one another or that we need to outshine one another. That's the problem with with the disciples. They were convinced that their position in the kingdom of God was dependent on their ability to outperform and outshine one another. If I can just do that, then I can have the greater position in the kingdom of God. But what does Jesus do with his disciples? It's really tempting, you know, I don't know if you've been in a position like this, but it's really tempting when people are like bickering for your attention or for your love. It's really easy to pit people against one another so that they might outdo one another and you get more out of it. Right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't put them against each other to motivate them to work even harder because, hey, after all, the ends justify the means and they'll go spread the kingdom of God even harder if I just make them against each other. He doesn't do that, actually. What does Jesus do? He says, I've assigned you the kingdom. God the Father has assigned me a kingdom. He's given me the kingdom. And now I'm assigning it to you. In other words, Jesus is the only one who's worthy of the kingdom. He's the only one worthy, yet he generously shares it with his followers. So here's here's the point. Here's the application point anyways. When we think we have to outshine each other, when we think we have to compete with one another, when we compare ourselves with others and see how we measure up and we gossip about others to tear them down in the eyes of others so that we might be built up, when we're driven by selfish ambition, what's going on is we are forgetting about the generous heart of God that gives us every blessing that we need in Christ Jesus. He shares all the benefits that he won with us freely, not based on our relationship with one another, not based on how we compare with one another, but based solely on Jesus' perfection, Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf and based then on our reliance on Him, faith in Him. And you receive every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Behold Christ. Behold Christ. Realize who He is and see what He has done and be humbled. That's what the disciples needed, and that's what we need this morning. Well, the disciples' overestimation of themselves is is not only revealed in their debate about who is the greatest, but it's seen in the naive ability, their naive view of their own ability to resist temptation and to remain faithful to Christ. We see beginning there in verse 31, this humble, we need humble perception. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus begins this address again, same context, after the Lord's Supper, all the disciples are together. Jesus addresses Simon Peter by, by saying his name twice. That's, that's meant to kind of you know, highlight the importance of what's about to follow. You know, it's kind of like when your mom uses your full name. You know, this, this is serious, right? Not that Jesus is scolding like, like maybe your mom would, would scold you. Not, not that, but indicating the serious nature of the conversation. What's interesting in this text is that even though Jesus addresses Peter specifically, the warning is actually to all the disciples the you there in verse 31 is, is plural in the, in the original. So it's hard to see that in, in, in the English, but you might say it this way. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you guys. Or y'all, or wherever you're from. You guys, whatever you... Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you guys, that he might sift you guys like Like wheat. And you're wondering, like, man, I don't know Greek. What, what can I do to see that? Well, if you have an ESV, it actually says it there in the footnote for you, which is helpful. Um, but also, you could buy a good study Bible, and it'll help you kind of see these things in the, in the text. As you look at the study notes alongside your reading. It's not just Peter who, are, who is in the crosshairs. All the disciples are in the crosshairs of Satan, but, but Peter kind of stands as, as representative, and we'll see that he, he, he is tempted to deny Christ and, and does. But all the disciples are in the crosshairs of Satan. Peter stands as a representative who will bear the brunt of the attack. But Satan's goal is to destroy all the disciples. He wants to sift them like wheat. The idea is to, you know, violently shake something as, as if to get it to pass through a sieve, you know, like flour that's come together. You kind of shake it and it all falls apart. It comes apart. It, that's the idea to violently shake something until it comes apart. That's what Satan wants to do. In our, in our world, in our culture, we might say Satan wants to tear you to shreds. He wants to take you apart piece by piece. And that's what Jesus is saying that Satan wants to do to his disciples. He wants to destroy Peter and all the disciples, leaving them in shambles by destroying their faith and causing them to walk away from Christ. What a scary thing to hear from Jesus if you're one of those disciples. But Jesus actually comforts them in verse 32. In verse 32, he actually returns his primary attention to Peter but i have prayed for you peter that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers fail here does not mean to make a mistake right i have prayed for you that you may not fail means i pray that you will not fall into this ultimate failure, the failure of faith that renounces Christ and finally walks away, right? Peter will deny Christ. He will fail in one sense, but he will not fail in the ultimate sense. We see that in verse 34, that he will fall. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So we can't take fail to mean that he won't stumble. It's that God will preserve him and persevere him despite his failure. Imagine the scene as evening sets in at this Passover meal. They've just observed it together. And Jesus says, Peter, before the sun comes up, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny even knowing me Three times. We see in this text what we've seen all throughout the gospel, that Jesus is absolutely aware of what is coming. He is predicting what is coming because he knows and is in control of all these events. And he tells Peter plainly, Peter, you're not as strong as you think. You're not as strong as you think you are. But we also see there's a type of stumbling that is not utter ruin. There's a type of failure that's not the ultimate failure. There's a failure of nerve in Peter that's not complete apostasy like Judas. And you can spot the difference between the two in this idea that Jesus says, when you've turned again. What's the difference between failure that's apostasy And stumbling and falling, but not ultimate failure and walking away from Christ. It's the existence of repentance. When you have turned again. See, Peter doesn't get the woes that were pronounced to Judas earlier in verse 22. He said, woe unto the one uh, who, who betrays me. But Jesus tells Peter, when you have turned again. Judas felt bad for his betrayal, but he did not turn back to Christ. He expressed worldly grief and worldly sorrow. Peter denied his denial, and he turned to Christ and was restored by Christ. I love that even in this, even in this prediction, there's a note of reconciliation before the betrayal even happens. Jesus is sort of zoomed out and seeing the larger picture here. I was thinking about it like a parent who's walked through just ultimate suffering and betrayal with a kid, but they're sort of on the backside of that and the relationship has been restored and things are good. You can look back on that time and you can see it with different eyes. You're not not in such anguish and sorrow as you were before because you're seeing a a larger picture. That's how Jesus is viewing this event. He speaks of reconciliation before the betrayal has even happened. And I think it highlights for us the grace and mercy of God, the grace and mercy of Christ. He knows Peter's upcoming failure. He's already interceded for him. Right? He's already interceded for him so that he will not fully walk away. And not only says that Peter will be totally forgiven, but when you've turned again, strengthen the brothers. Strengthen your brothers strengthen the disciples, not only will he be totally forgiven, but that he will be used in this mission of God that the disciples will carry forth. You can read about Peter's restoration in John 21, and you can read about the way God used Peter in the book of Acts. He's a leader amongst the disciples. He denied Christ was fully restored and was used in a mighty way. And I hope, again, we're, just, we're trying to behold Christ. I hope you can see the grace of God in this passage. I hope you're encouraged this morning that your sin is not your ruin. Through the faithfulness of Jesus, our stumbling is not apostasy. Peter fell, but he did not fail. Jesus said, I prayed for you that you would not fail. He turned again. He turned back to Christ, and Jesus restored him. So I wonder this morning, I know a lot of us wrestle with the assurance of our salvation. Is there the existence of repentance when you sin? Do you hate your sin enough to fight it? Then you should be encouraged by that. That the Spirit is at work in your heart helping you to battle the flesh. The person who walks according to the flesh cannot please God. So you can be encouraged of Christ's work in you if you hate your sin, if you cry out to Him in faith and ask for forgiveness when you sin and for strength to battle it. And Jesus is our intercessor. He is a constant testimony that our hope is not in our sinlessness. Our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in our ability to keep from stumbling, but in the righteousness of Christ applied to all who have faith in Him. So two things, two reminders for us in the text just quickly. Cling to Jesus first, but two, do not be surprised. If some who once seemed to be vibrant and faithful followers of Jesus walk away, because it it happens, it happened with Judas. Now, one thing: if that's true, we got to cling to Christ. We got to we got to turn quickly from our sin. Right? Not I'm not saying that's the basis of our justification. That's the evidence of our justification right don't don't misunderstand me but but if that's the pervasive reality of sin in my in my heart that it's a constant need for me to confess sin to acknowledge sin to repent of sin and and it's if that's true of peter as well then that should be that should cause us to be leery of ourselves right so don't don't follow your heart and this warning it should make peter alert But instead, what does he do? He boasts of his own faithfulness. This warning should cause Peter to fall in fear and trembling, but he boasts of his own faithfulness. Peter said to him in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. One thing we see, at least, the positive side of the disciples is they're actually beginning to kind of come to terms with what Jesus has been saying. Peter at least recognizes what's coming up for Jesus. He's going to be captured and he's going to be put to death. But he's boasting in his willingness to remain faithful through it all despite what Jesus has just told him. Peter is overconfident. He says he will never do what Jesus says that He will, He's gonna do. He underestimates his own heart and the powerful influence that Satan can have over people and over circumstances. He looks around at the Last Supper. You know, you could, you can sympathize with Peter in a sense. You kind of look around, you got your disciples there, you got Jesus there, you, you're in this private moment, you feel strong, and and he he underestimates his own ability to sin in grievous ways. And so he boasts there. But he will soon find himself in a much different circumstance and time. And he will deny Christ. When I got saved as a teenager, the first book I ever read, a Christian book, was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. But the second book I read was this book by MacArthur on the death of Christ. And I remember as a young Christian kind of reading about Peter's denial. And, you know, the, MacArthur gave this warning. He said, you know, it's easy for us to boast that I would even die for Christ. But he said, the reality is that we deny Him every day when something much less than death is on the line. Maybe it's my comfort, maybe it's sleep, maybe it's power, something much less respect is on the line, and I sin against God to go after that thing. So may we be humble as we think about Peter and his overconfidence. Are we not more like Peter than we want to admit? We assume we're strong, so we don't prepare for temptation. We think we're stronger than we are, so we look at the church and we say, I think I could take it or leave it. I think my brothers and sisters, I don't need their help along the way. We desperately need one another's help along the way. We act as if we don't need one another to remain faithful. What we truly need is humility before Christ. And as we started, we can't just buckle down and produce this in ourselves. We must look to Christ, behold Him, see what He's done, and be humbled. We'll end with this. I'm not sure if I've ever... Shared this story with you before. I keep track of the illustrations I've used and I couldn't find anywhere I did, but sometimes illustrations come out in the middle of a sermon and I haven't tracked it. So we'll end with this. When I was playing basketball in college, there was this culture on the, on the team uh, that, that seniors kind of got special treatment, right? If you'd played four years, I'm telling you, you didn't even have to carry your own bag into the hotel room, right? That was sort of the, sort of the culture. And when we go to games, we only had one manager. So, uh, you know, players would have to pitch in and, you know, the manager would wash the jerseys and have them and bring them, but he'd have to bring that and water bottles and any other gear we had. And so the younger guys had to kind of pitch in and sometimes you had to carry this big box of jerseys into the game. And I know this won't make sense to any of you who have never played sports, but nobody's afraid of the guy that's walking in with the jerseys, right? Right. They don't respect the guy that comes in with the water bottles. So you, there was this culture. You didn't, you didn't really want to be that guy. So my, my senior year comes around. I'm the only senior on the team. I'm ready to be that guy. You know, like I was ready to be done with such menial tasks. The only problem for me was we had just gotten a new coach that year. And he says, he says in one of our first meetings, I believe in servant leadership. And since Kyle's the only senior he'll be carrying the jerseys into every game. <laughs> you know, that, but that was instructive for me because what I saw in, in my coach actually was that he lived out what he taught. Half the time I couldn't get to the jerseys because Coach Szymanski was there to pick him up and he would carry him in as the head coach of this team. It was a, a lesson that impacted me and one that I think reflected what we're seeing here in our text this morning, what Jesus taught his disciples. I was ready to be one who reclines at table and gets served. And I needed to be humbled and learn that that I needed to be the one who serves. What I needed was humility. What I needed was to behold Christ. And I think that's still what I need, and I think that's what we all need this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, change us we see the pervasive remains of pride in our flesh and we hate it. We want to grow in humility. We want to consider others more important than ourselves. We want to be like Christ. Lord, would you cause that to happen in our hearts as we behold him? May we be transformed from one degree of glory to another. May we glorify Christ by exemplifying his humility. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. In Jesus' name, amen.